I loved Game of Thrones. Tara and I binged the whole thing in a couple months, which is light speed given our schedules. But I do regret that we didn't start watching until after the series ended. I missed out on all the water cooler talk and the banter on Twitter. I haven't been part of the zeitgeist in real time since The Sopranos originally aired, back when Twitter didn't even exist and offices still had actual water coolers. It's hard to imagine TV shows or movies captivating our nation the way they used to, which is a shame because we've never needed something to bring us together like we do today. Even Game of Thrones only reached Americans who have HBO. Shows like Ted Lasso and Squid Game are super popular, but that's relative. A full third of Americans don't even have Netflix and far fewer have Apple TV. It makes you wonder if entertainment does more to divide us, both because of how fragmented it is and how it's deliberately engineered to appeal to specific segments of the population certainly happens in the news. Publishers have no choice but to lean into political tribalism. Consumers want content that aligns with their beliefs, and if a media outlet strays from the narrative, people have plenty of other places to go, then ad dollars follow, then newsrooms have layoffs, and the cycle of fragmentation rolls on. Social media is ubiquitous, but it can't solve the world's problems, don't even get me started on Facebook. TikTok is game-changing, but it's just a distribution platform. People and unity are inspired by artists, not pipes. So where does it all leave us? That's what I asked two of the smartest media experts in the world. Sarah Fisher is a reporter at Axios and author of the Axios Media Trends newsletter, read by everybody who's anybody in media or big tech. And Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners, one of the most influential Wall Street analysts in tech and media. We talked about the present and the future of everything from local news to movies to the metaverse, whatever the hell that is, and whether it's okay to leave your phone on the table when having dinner with someone. So plug in your brain to meet Sarah and Rich, two of the biggest luminaries in all of technology and media, and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Sarah, great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, Rich. Nice to see you too. Nice to always talk to you, John. This is the first kind of panel style podcast I've done yet where we have multiple multiple guests at the same time, but I know you know each other really well and, and really complimentary views on the world. So I'm excited to listen to the two of you talk to each other as much as anything. So we like breaking new ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're doing that here. Sarah, big question for you. First question. If you could be the CEO of any big tech or media company you wanted, would you let Rich Greenfield ask you a question on your earnings call? Of course. I think Rich asks great questions. And I think that most seasoned executives aren't afraid of questions from any analysts, you know, let alone the folks at, at Lightshed. So yeah, Rich, you can ask me whatever you want when I become a CEO one day. That is a great answer. I 100% agree. And maybe it's a bit of an inside joke for some of some of the listeners that don't know, know Rich's background, but you should look it up because he does uh awesome job on, on earnings calls. But I think some people have are have been have become afraid of it. So I shame on them. Uh you're 100% right, Sarah. Rich, the metaverse, you buying or selling? First of all, the metaverse doesn't even exist yet. Exactly. So, Good. So, exactly. like, it's, it's actually a it's actually a trick question because <laughs> there's nothing to buy or to sell. There's an idea of what the metaverse ultimately is, and I, I John, I think what's funny about it is if you look out, you know, over the last ten years, you know, it's been a term that people sort of heard about and knew about, but the fact that in the last sort of month and a half. It's become the single most overused word in the tech and media ecosystem. It's just everyone's using it as sort of like a crutch. Like, 
hey, we've got a metaverse opportunity. And even if it doesn't even fit with the overall company, I mean, you know, the Disney CEO, Bob Chapik, was talking about like the Disney metaverse tied to their streaming Disney Plus service. And you're like, wait a second, what does that even have to do with a metaverse? Like, I, I actually think most of the people talking about a metaverse have no idea what the metaverse actually will eventually be if it ever actually exists. That is exactly the answer I was hoping for because I, that's how I feel. Because I, otherwise people ask me, my mom asks me, I'm like, mom, I have no idea what the hell it is. I don't think anybody does. It feels to me like this sort of an industry that's sort of grasping at trying to be ahead of the next big thing, maybe because they, they feel like all this attention is going to crypto or other things right now that they're on the sidelines of. But yeah, I 100% agree. More serious question, Sarah, because I know this is something you wrote about recently, local news, news in general. And this is, this is, I'd love you to weigh in on this as well, Rich. Like, can we save it? Right. I mean, I'm not going to ask you how, because if, if you knew how to do that, we'd go into business together, or maybe you have some ideas on it, but, but what do we, you know, I grew up trusting local news, right? I, I, cause I could, the weatherman came to my school and, you know, when I was in elementary school and we had these, these connections with people and, and even the reporters that we, that we read, whose names we knew. And now we're watching, you know, most local news organizations, particularly newspapers being taken over by hedge funds with dubious, dubious objectives at best. Can we save it? I think we as a society can do anything that we want and we just have to team up and kind of all get on the same page. And the problem is we as a society have such low trust in key institutions that we are not on the same page about what we want to save and what we want to prioritize. And when you ask, can local news be saved? I mean, my company, Axios, we're going to be in 25 cities next year. We are desperately trying to save local news and we're trying to bring a new and innovative format to it. We wouldn't be doing that if we thought the answer to your question was no. But I do think, to your point, the biggest challenge is so many people want to save local news. I can't tell you how many nonprofits, billionaires I've interviewed to who are trying to save local news and solve this problem. But because we as a society aren't unified in how we want to go about it, how we should be funding it, how we should be thinking about it, it's going to be very hard to have any more progress than something that's just incremental. And that's what kind of keeps me up at night right now. But I, you know, but I want to just jump in because I think Sarah hit an important point. You know, first of all, when you say save the news, I think a lot of people go, oh, that means you may want to save newspapers or you want to save um, local television stations, right? I mean, part of the problem is, and I'll, this is sort of why I think Axios is so interesting as a business model, but if you look at like what's happened to local news and, and even local television over, and even local radio over the last 20 years, they've consolidated. They now produce things remotely. They're not actually local. Like, so when people say save local, a lot of this is like cut and paste from a wire service in some other city. Like it has literally nothing to do with the word local and it's not a local service and it's actually not a whole lot of value add. And so I almost think the question is less about saving what is there today versus what Axios is doing is reinventing the future of local news. And so I hate the word save because I don't actually think the, I don't think a lot of people want to save the old model because I think most of what's there isn't worth saving. I think there's, a whole new opportunity and whether it's what Axios is doing or you look at what Substack is doing or you look at like what a company like Workweek is doing. Like, I think there's lots of ways of rethinking what journalism is in, in 2021 and 2022 and beyond than what it's been in the past. 
Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And just to respond quickly, totally agree. The one thing that's challenging, and this goes back to the societal priorities, is do people want the same levels of accountability in their local journalism that we used to have? I agree. It can't be the same format. But one of the problems is, are the new formats going to put in place state house reporters, people who are covering school boards? Right now, one trend we're seeing is there's a lot of new local initiatives, but they're covering, you know, new restaurants. They're covering tech innovation. I'm not saying those things are bad, but that's where I think the real hole is, is how do we incentivize people to go in there and cover the nitty gritty kind of more boring stuff? That's what we really need. And I think new models is going to be key to that. But I also think there's going to have to be, until we figure this out, more nonprofit prioritization of those types of coverage, because it just doesn't get a lot of engagement, but it's so critical right now. You called me out on using the word save, Rich, and you're right. Although though when I say save, save local news, I meant save the things you're talking about, Sarah, right? Keeping local politicians accountable and keep, keeping local companies accountable, like the things that new, the virtues that, that responsible journalism advances. But you're so right, Rich, because I don't know if the average person thinks that way about saving the news or saving the newspaper, they think to themselves, how do I save the printing press? How do I save the the teamster who's driving and delivering the newspaper to my friend? There's still a large enough portion of the population that thinks that way. No. And look, it's going to look different, right? Like Facebook groups. I mean, every town has a Facebook group and next door just went public, a, a new public company basically built around the idea of neighborhood. And it's whether it's policing or whether it's vetting quality of, of contractors in a neighborhood, like there's new forms of how people are vetting. I mean, heck, my ring camera on my front door now has a neighborhood watch feature that alerts you when there's been you know X number of break-ins in a community or there's a wild animal on the loose. Like, I'm not saying those are the same as what Sarah's getting at in terms of covering school boards. I'm just basically getting at there are new forms of what local news information that's relevant to you looks like. And my guess is we're going to see a reinvention. It probably won't be as profitable. I mean, I think, you know, sort of the profitability model that was out there in the past, whether it was the heyday of newspapers, or if you think about sort of the heyday of the multi-channel cable bundle, John, something you and I have talked about many, many times in the past. I don't think we're ever going to see the type of profitability. But, you know, I think there is, you know, I mean, look, you could turn on Pluto TV today and they're streaming the news or 2B TV. Like these are free services that are streaming this content without having to have a cable service. Like that's that's a you know, that's a big change from a few years ago, even in the TV ecosystem. I'm maybe a little more optimistic about the potential profitability if it can be done at scale. Like if a company like Axios can exceed, succeed at what it's trying to do, then it can achieve multi-geographic outposts that can be done and you can create economies of scale and efficiencies efficiencies in doing that. I'm actually maybe a bit more optimistic. Well, it may not be boondoggle days of like the family owned newspaper. So that's, that's fair. It's a different standard, but you mentioned it was a good, good segue, Rich, kind of um, the, the cable bundle, which is definitely something we've talked a lot about that conversation's coming on, right? We, we know where the world is going, but streaming is, feels to me like in some ways is kind of heading maybe in a similar path. And I'd love to hear your thought, both of your thoughts on what the end game of, of streaming. And I mean, streaming on the, on the video side, because now there are so many platforms out there, right? That I can't subscribe. My kids will come and say, hey, dad, I want to start watching this one show. And we don't pay for it yet. 
like when's somebody going to come and bundle up all the all the streaming services so I can get them at a better price? And then I'm going to bitch about the one that I pay for that I never watch. Like, are we headed? Is that where we're headed? What protects us? Is, are we seeing is more is consolidation going to come or are we still way too early to even be talking about consolidation? I think there's a little more consolidation that's left. So you have some low hanging fruit. Like I don't imagine stars, for example, is going to have its own streaming service standalone forever. But I think you're going to continue to have a few big players. And I think most consumers, the analysis I've seen, are going to pay for about four streaming services per household. They're usually willing to pay, you know, in the 10 to $15 ballpark per streaming service. And I think those services will continue to get better and better so that consumers will feel less icky about it if they are, for some reason, still paying for pay TV right now. I think the big question becomes, how do you manage the churn wars? So right now, consumers can dip in and out of these services all the time. And what the challenge is going to be for these, you know, three or four major streaming services is how do I get people to not tune out after they finish binging their favorite show? How do I keep them there? And so that's what I think the streaming world has become. And I know Rich has a lot to say on this, but the other aspect of this is going to be how do you think about the global expansion of your streaming services? These are not just going to be, you know, confined to the U.S. If you look at Netflix they're all their opportunity. They're completely saturated here. Disney too. All their opportunity is going to come from abroad. And the thing I'm I'm wondering the most right now is there are some services that look really you know good right now because they do okay in the U.S. I mean, specifically if you think about you know Paramount Plus, are those services going to be able to compete globally? I know they're trying, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I take a I take offense to your question, John, because I think it's actually the most consumer unfriendly thing you could possibly say. You want to repackage all of these services into one. The, the problem with the cable bundle and the reason why it's dying is that you can't pick and choose. Like Sarah may not be a sports fan, but she's paying $13 a month for the suite of ESPN channels. And, you know, you may not be a fan of, I live in Manhattan. I'm not a Knicks fan, but I'm paying $8.50 a month to watch the Knicks lose. Or, you know, it, we can go on and on down this list, but I think the problem in the cable bundle has been you didn't have the choice. I think you should be so excited that with one click of a button, no waiting on hold for Comcast for an hour to disconnect. Like with one little click of the button, you can cancel HBO Max and choose something else for that month. Or you've watched YouTube TV for six months because you wanted it for NFL season. Click cancel and you're canceled for the rest of the year. Like it is so easy. It's so consumer friendly. Like I would just think like, you know, Every consumer should be loving this, that they're in for the first time ever, they actually have control of what they spend versus having to take an 80 to $100 or more, even more bill where they have no choice over what they watch. Everything is just bundled together under the perception of value. The other thing I would just say, because I think it follows up on Sarah, is like, I sort of blame Bob Iger for all of this, like, you know, in terms of like the streaming wars that we have today, it's really his fault. And what I mean by that is, Disney was so successful in changing the narrative of the Walt Disney Company that the stock doubled in stock price even during the pandemic. Everyone got excited by Disney Plus, and it caused all of these other companies, many that Sarah just numbered, like Paramount Plus and Peacock. Like there would be no Discovery Plus, there wouldn't be a Peacock, there wouldn't be a Paramount Plus. But everyone saw Disney and said, "Oh, well, they did it. They did it really fast. It was amazing. The stock took off." hey, we can do this too. And instead of being arms dealers to the existing services, 
and creating real scaled content in each of the existing ones. Now we're stuck with this glut of services. Most of them cannot be global. Most of them consumers literally don't care about. Most of them, they don't have enough money to spend on or have the willingness to spend on the content. And so I don't know if they get consolidated. They may just fade away or they may just shrink. I mean, look, you can be a small streaming service and survive a long time. Like, But will they matter on the global equation? It, you know, right now, I mean, again, if you think about sort of time spent on a television, the staggering statistic is a quarter of time spent, a little bit more, is Netflix. A quarter of it is effectively YouTube. So two services represent 50% of time spent on a connected TV. Everyone else is sort of a rounding error. You know, you know quickly, I, just to follow up on that, sorry, but no, I just go, want to go, ask go. your question, John, about it being an annoying experience to the consumer. You do bring up one point, which is that it is kind of annoying that I have to toggle through all of these services, remember my passwords, blah, blah, blah. And to that end, there are some solutions being built out there. If you look at like Xfinity X1, which is the new Comcast platform, I love that I have one Xfinity platform and I can toggle through all my streaming services. I can actually do discoverability in between them. Altice has a similar platform called Altice One. I'm not saying that this is the, the solve, but I think that the telcos and I think that some of the you know big TV companies are starting to recognize, Rich talks about platform wars all the time. They're starting to recognize that you need to create a smart platform operating system for smart TV to make it more digestible for the consumer. And so I think those solutions will just continue to get better. I, I, I didn't mean to offend Rich because I'm not even saying that that's the outcome I'm hoping for or want that, but it's, it feels there's the- You said you wanted a bundle of services and I'm telling well, you, you don't want it. I'm saying I, you don't. I, I, fair enough. But well, if I can choose the bundle, I guess, right? Can I, can I sushi menu my way to the exact bundle that I want? Because I agree, look, there, but we've got conflicting forces here. We've got consumers who, yes, they want endless choice. But we've also got consumers that at weak moments will give up their choice in if they can pay less for it, right? And, and maybe give up that choice for a bit more convenience. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got these huge companies that understand that choice isn't their friend, right? Choice isn't scalable. And, you know, you, you saw, I, I saw you, you tweeted this a, a week or two ago about, you know, how hard HBO is pushing people to do long-term, like year-long subscriptions because they're, that, that is like, tip of the spear, man. I mean, the, the concerns, the implications of churn to these people are going to create really difficult economic headwinds for them, right? Because it's, how do you budget according? There's only one thing that matters. And Sarah certainly touched on it. And it is the single most important point that most of these companies do not understand. Meaning you're thinking about legacy media companies relative to tech companies. Is that it's a war for time and attention. Like when, when we talk about Snapchat, it's how many times you're touching the service every day. When it's Facebook, how many minutes per day? I mean, remember, they, they used to disclose in their calls how many minutes people were spending with the Facebook. They don't do it anymore, but they used to like literally disclose how much time people were spending. Netflix, early on, it was all about how much time. Like It was time, 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 every day where you would time. And yet the media companies, most of these companies, like they just want you to subscribe and they're not thinking about constantly engaging you. It's almost like they're still stuck in that movie and TV world where, oh, you see a few of our movies a year. You watch one of, you know, you watch one HBO show in a year. That's fine. But now you're moving into a world where since you can cancel every moment and where wallet share is up for grabs, now it's how do you own a customer and they never leave you. And that's that's exactly the way Netflix, Amazon, Apple, those are the way those companies think about the world. 
I just think it's a foreign concept to most of these media companies. And they just are not programmed DNA wise to think like that. But Sarah, do you think the consumer is can defend themselves from that? I mean, if they're if they're if those big blue chip media brands, right, Disney or HBO or whatever, come to me with the right economic proposition. Can they can they step can they step outside of themselves and say, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, that's not in my best interest. But man, if I got like six months free, if I signed up for three years, I'm going to do it like these guys. These companies have learned from the telcos to the on down have learned how to pull those those levers with the consumer. Can maybe I'm just overly pessimistic or cynical, but is there an inevitability to that with these huge companies with all their resources? I mean, there's an inevitability that there's going to be continued consolidation once they realize that at one given moment, consumers don't want to pay for more than four services. But I think consumers are really savvy. They know how they want to spend their money. They'll cancel. They'll reignite. They'll do whatever they have to do in order to get the content that they want when they want it. The challenge, I think, for a lot of companies, I think this way, especially about news companies, although the FTC is cracking down, is they make it hard for consumers. Like they make it hard for consumers to cancel their subscriptions. And that turns consumers off that, you know, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I wouldn't even buy a new subscription because the thought of having to call a cancel is just so archaic and crazy. So I think consumers are going to be pretty savvy. I just think that the challenge is that to Rich's point, a lot of these companies are not going to meet the consumer's demand. And that's going to be on them, not the consumer. So I want to shift away from news and streaming a bit to kind of the next frontier or the newest frontier, which is TikTok. Uh, I have two teenage daughters. They're on it so much drives me crazy. Sarah, I know it's something you cover a lot. And it's obviously, you know, what what blows my mind isn't just how it's changing like my kids' consumption, but it's changing everything from, you know, brand building to what it means to be a celebrity. And, you know, influencer marketing works. We see it in our data all the time. When last summer McDonald's does a Travis Scott meal and boom, sales go up. Like these things work. It's amazing. Big question I have, uh, we know how concentrated usage is among these platforms, among young people. And that's not just TikTok, but also Instagram and Snapchat. Do you believe that that, let's just focus on TikTok. Do you believe that TikTok has the potential to be a platform that travels with this generation as they get older? Or is it a, so I, we always draw the distinction between what's considered a generational phenomenon and what's considered a life stage phenomenon. Is TikTok a life stage phenomenon or a generational one? Meaning, does it have longevity beyond this group of people? Is it, is it, is it a permanent game change? TikTok's the new normal. Okay. That is it. I mean, TikTok has tapped into something that is more than zeitgeist. It's habitual. It serves you exactly what you want, when you want it. It's so easy to access. In fact, when I come home, the thought of actually pressing the buttons to turn my TV on and flip through the remote feels exhausting to me when I could just sit on my couch and watch TikTok and have it be perfectly curated to what I know it knows that I want. I think that it's not going anywhere. And as a result, look at every single social media platform is copying it. I think this is absolutely the way it's going to be when we consume mobile entertainment from now on. And I think that if people want to go back to the old world of interstitials and pre-roll and all this clunky video, it's just not reality anymore. Can I just interrupt John for a second on, on, you know, I don't even think you're interrupting. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. No, I, I guess just from the standpoint of, I have a question for you. Do you use Instagram? I creep on it a bit. I don't use it as much. But you have um, lots of friends your age that I sure, assume you use absolutely. Instagram. Lots, yep. right? Like uh, yep. tons. Yep. But where did Instagram start? What demo? 
youth. Not you. I'm just making the the larger point that like most of these things, Facebook started in college. Mark Zuckerberg started at college. It was a college student network. Now it's something that most youths abhor because they don't want to be where their parents or grandparents are, but that's where it started. Instagram and Instagram stories started, you know, younger and have built up. So I look, I think there's a natural aging up of these platforms. Look, some fade and just disappear. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, I think in general, the successful ones age up over time and expand the market. And I think the, the telltale sign for TikTok in terms of aging up is when it started, it was very much like YouTube. If you think about the early days of YouTube, it was karaoke, it was dance, it was comedy. You think Charlie bit my finger. Like that's the way YouTube started. It's exactly the way TikTok started. But think about what TikTok is now. Like you can find meditation, you can find cooking. Like there is not a category. I mean, you, you could try. It is hard to find any category where there isn't a massive amount of content now on TikTok. And so I think they've done a great job of expanding the verticals and giving different types of doctors. I mean, how many, there's an insane amount of doctors trying to be influencers now, trying to build their practices, you know, off of TikTok from dermatologists to plastic surgeons. Like it is crazy what you'll find. Like go look at, you know, foot doctor Dana. Like there is just funny stuff of how different groups of people are, are using it, but that expands the demo pretty dramatically. And so I do think that there's a, the ones that really understand they, they, they figure out their starting point and then they build it. And, you know, part of that is diversifying the content. The other is making it longer. Like TikTok used to be, you know, 60 second content. Now it's 10 minute content. Like it's going to, my guess is in two years, it'll be 30 minute content, right? Like it'll just keep giving you more and more just the way YouTube started with, you know, very short form video. And now is, you know, you can watch hour long content on YouTube. So I just think there's a natural aging up of successful platforms. And it, like, it may not happen, but like even look at Roblox, right? Like Roblox was essentially for eight to 12 year olds and Roblox is now the fastest growing segment is 13 plus. Well, you just beat me to the punch on that. I'm going to come back to Roblox in a second. But the reason I asked the question, the thing I, I know, I know, Rich, we have a mutual friend in Bob Lefsetz who I've had on the podcast before, and he always throws daggers at MTV. And how MTV failed at this ability, this aging up because they tried to age up and actually failed at it instead of trying to continue to own sort of the youth segment. Or then they were schizophrenic about that, which is which is kind of the maybe they're the cautionary tale of how to do this the wrong way. But I tend, you know, I, I do agree with you, Sarah, that that it is the new normal. I would consider TikTok potentially a bigger threat to Netflix than anything else that's out there. If 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 the if the battleground is for war of attention and the war of time, right? I think that's what I wake up more as Netflix because I don't have to flip on my television, cycle through to the show, right? All those kinds of things. So you mentioned Roblox, which was a question I was going to ask. I don't believe it gets nearly enough attention. Uh, kudos to you because you do try to shine a spotlight on it. But if we're looking back, you know, say 20 years from now, 30 years from now on in media or technology innovations at that mass scale that that represented a turning point, which one which ends up being the bigger one, TikTok or Roblox? Because I feel like when we even when we start talking about metaverse, like that's the blueprint for metaverse. Right. For a lot of people, I don't think Roblox, because if you're not in that age demo, maybe you may just think of it as like a video game or something. I mean, talk about sort of the impact of that platform as you see it going forward. Well, I, you know, I, I guess the right way to frame it is there's, ma- you know, major operating systems that drive most of the value in the world that Sarah and I cover and look at, whether it's, you know, Mac and PC in the desktop world, 
whether it's Android and iOS and the mobile world, obviously you have a pretty fierce fight that you sort of alluded to in the TV OS war. You know, if you're thinking about Roku and Samsung and Amazon and even Google TV now, but you know, what's, what's sort of presented itself over the course of the last couple of years is that Facebook is not uh, an operating system. It's a platform. It's a huge one. It's probably the largest platform on planet earth, but they're not an operating system and they don't control the phone. And when, Tim Cook or you know Android wants to make a change that can significantly impact Facebook's business. And so I think part of this, I hate saying this, but this war for the metaverse, like metaverse wars, <laughs> I don't even know. I, it's like nauseating. I'm saying it and that's like, I'm like, it's almost like vomit mouth, like as I'm saying it, but like, let's just for the moment, call it metaverse wars. And I'll think of a better word at some point. The reason it's so important I think is that if we get to that point where the metaverse does exist and there is this sort of world that we sort of live in both, you know, in some way, live, work, play, whatever. But if that happens, you know, I think if you're Zuckerberg and you you hope that that is a virtual reality world where, where you're in control, it's because Facebook or Meta now, I should say, Meta wants to be the operating system. They want to control the operating system. That is the missing piece. They are not the operating system for anything. And I think that is the ultimate goal here. And so whether it's Roblox, whether it's Epic, whether it's Facebook, Microsoft, this little company called Apple, right? Like there's lots of players who could be that company. Usually it's one or two companies take the vast majority of value or the, of, you know, of, of this operating system and win. Will it be Facebook? Will it be Roblox? Will it be Epic Games? There's going to be lots of companies fighting to try. The rewards are obviously immense. And I think that's why everyone is starting to talk about this. And so it's a long-winded answer to your question. I think in success, my guess is Roblox can be a bigger company than TikTok. But you know, we're a long ways off. And you know, TikTok is obviously... But even TikTok is not fair because TikTok is just one piece of ByteDance. And ByteDance has lots of other pieces. So it's not even really a fair question. But I know where you're going in terms of short form video versus metaverse, which is bigger. I, I think you have to say, at least in my opinion, would be the metaverse. But it's so long dated in nature. I, I feel somewhat silly making the comparison. Fair point. Fair point. I just, you know, I, I just am reminded all the time that that Roblox is bigger. So it's the scale of it's just people I, are shocked. I will say one thing that I'm confident in. They will both be bigger than Viacom. <laughs> fair. Fair. So taking it maybe like a step deeper, I don't think I've done ever done an episode of this podcast where the, the topic of kind of political tribalism hasn't come up in some way, shape or form. Obviously, when we talk about the news and news media, that is like the pernicious sort of state of America in terms of how divided we are by the content we trust and the content we don't trust. We can pretty much predict more things about somebody when we ask them their political party affiliation than anything else, whether even more than their gender or their age, right? It has just become a proxy for so many other things. And obviously one of the, the clearest proxies is which cable news network that you watch, right? Or, or which newspaper that you might read. But I also feel like the, the nature of political tribalism, or at least the way that we're divided along political lines shows up in, in, in other sort of entertainment forms of media as well. Rich, you and I just had an, an exchange about this recently about, you know, a show like Squid Game, which just like set records for consumption and minutes and, and all of that on Netflix. And, and we, 
But when you get down to the bottom of it, first of all, we're, we're comparing that to say like what the MASH finale was like 40 years ago and how the yeah. world's kind of so much more fragmented that. But also too, we forget Netflix alone is disproportionately left of center audience, partly because broadband is sort of stronger in places where Democrats live historically. Like if you live in rural parts of the country, you may not have strong enough streaming, you know, internet to get it. And so there's, and if you think about a show like Squid Game and you think about the demo of the person who tries to watch it, you can paint those kind of political lines in your head as well. So it brings me back to the big question, which is, first of all, do we, can we ever have a real tent pole again? I mean, are, are, is that is that of all the things we talk about that are passe, the cable bundle or whatever, is a true tentpole media property or news organization possible, Sarah? Or is it really about figuring out who your niche audience is and delivering that niche audience exactly what it is that they want from you? Mm-hmm. Well, my answer to this question goes back sort of to TikTok roadblocks, which is the thing that TikTok revolutionized really well was it put the focus on creators and it put the focus on talent and it made it so that anybody, doesn't matter who you are, could go viral overnight. And the reason that matters is because to your question about temples, we've gotten to a point now where there is so much pressure on any sort of legacy institution because almost any institution, person, talent can spring up and become the most popular thing overnight. And so the question becomes, are we going to have temples that look the same that they used? I still think we're going to have certain events, certain pieces of cultural zeitgeist that unite people, but they probably will do so for shorter periods of time. They might not do so perennially. So, for example, we always had about 100 million Americans watching the Super Bowl every single February. Well, now we have, you know, dozens of millions, probably hundreds of millions that are watching around the world Squid Games. Are they going to watch it every single year for the next 20 years, every single month at the same time? No, but they are going to come together around these sort of pop-up franchises, and they're going to and sometimes draw even bigger audiences than our traditional temples used to. So I don't think it's that temples are going away. I just think that the goalposts have shifted. What we consider a temple is going to be different. The new temple is the new Netflix hit. That's the new thing that everyone's going to rally around, and that's going to be our new reality. And, you know, look, I I don't it's obviously always difficult to know sort of political leanings. And I'm sure your survey data is far better than anything else out there. But it it is when you start to get into the you know, Netflix in the U.S. probably has around 70 million households. They report U.S. and Canada. But, you know, you're somewhere around 70 million U.S. households now. Like you're pretty well diversified. Like this is no longer what, what started off really strong. I remember in the early days, like it was like you know, super lit up in San Francisco and like, you know, the coasts and you're pretty well diversified across the country. Now, I don't know what viewership looks like by region in terms of hours consumed, et cetera. But I do think that there is a pretty large cross section now that you've gotten up into that 70 million subscribers. I mean, look, TV households, the the heyday of the bundle that we were talking about before was a hundred and, you know, 10 million, 100, you know, like you sort of peaked like, sorry, just 102 million. Like you peaked just over 100 million TV, cable TV households. You know, I, I, I think Netflix probably can get to 90 million households. It's going to get, you know, it gets really tough though, that last 20 million, just given income and to your point on broadband. But, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it keep growing, you know, towards that number as, as the content diversifies. 
But, you know, it's funny, we were having this debate at a breakfast I had this morning of like, will there ever be a show like Friends again? Will there ever be a show like Grey's Anatomy that goes, I mean, what is this, season 19, Sarah, for Grey's Anatomy? Like, I can't make, my, my girls are obsessed. Like, they literally, like, world stops for Grey's Anatomy. It's like the only thing they really are passionate about on, you know, a long-term basis. So I, I don't know whether we'll ever see a show like that or shows like that again. Some may say that's sad. On the other hand, like there's more great content now than ever before. I mean, you know, and hits are bigger than they've ever been. Like there's nothing. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's ever been a series. You know, you think about nine episodes of almost an hour, the amount of consumption in the last eight weeks of Squid Games. I mean, I think it's like 2.1 billion hours of consumption on a global basis. Like there's never been a global hit like this in anything. I mean, over... X number of years with something like Friends or whatever, watch an incredible amount, sure. But like in 60 days, we've never seen something have this much consumption. So, and that's because of the internet and the availability of streaming and binge watching and, and everything that sort of Netflix and others have, have laid. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that sort of the answer to your question is this is the golden age for consumers. Like they've got more choice and more content. Yes, it's confusing and which platform has which stuff, but it's pretty amazing how much content you can get for a fraction of what you used to have to pay. And you don't have to wait a week between episodes very often. You don't have to wait, you know, you, you can binge, even if you, even if something new is week to week, there's plenty of great series. Like if you've never seen the wire, go watch the wire on HBO max. Like there's just so much great content at a click of a button. Now I think it's really empowering to consumers. Well, there's no question about it. And, and again, I think these are frictions that we try to explore here and we look at in our data all the time is, yes, the, the, the selection that I have at my disposal and, and, and the ability to find the thing that's like distinctly almost made for me, right? Like these platforms, yep. are TikTok's a distribution platform. It's not a content platform. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a distribution platform for content creators. And Netflix is more of a distribute. Now, of course, they create their own content, but there's the, there's a, there's the, the good side of personalization both in terms of like the, its convenience and its and the satisfaction it gives to me, and also because the the content the distributors and the creators can kind of algorithmically figure out which content I want to see, right? And so all of a sudden, the things I want, the things that affirm me, are presented to me more directly than the things I don't. But there's the pernicious, there's the negative side of that, right? Which is I don't see the other stuff, and you know, there's certainly clear arguments that can be made that a lot of the division that has been sort of facilitated in our country has been because we've because everything is so personalized for us right we we seek out the things that affirm our points of view and turn away or consider fake the ones that don't and that's maybe a bit more kind of more of a news media thing but it also is going to flow into the way let's just let's just say those rural people who historically couldn't get strong internet all of a sudden can, they're going to want different programming than the person who's had Netflix for 15 years. Like, that's just the way it is. Like, so, so I guess the question I ask isn't so much just like, will there be a tent pole, but can, to, to whatever extent media has played a role in the division in our country, can it, can it help to fix it? You know, and what might that look like? I mean, that's a really heady question, but, but how, how is, how can Netflix, because I do believe like Ted Sarandos is a, good man, like really like generally like wants to do good things with this platform and, and the content that they create. Like if you're, how does he, how does he program or distribute or create content for a country that's this divided? Is it possible? 
He just cares about what's the most entertaining content. I mean, Ted Sarandos is not thinking about democracy, I don't think. Well, okay, fair enough. But I mean, I don't think he's necessarily like oblivious to like necessarily wanting to do bad things. Right. I mean, but one would argue that it's not Netflix's fault that we have this division. It's the fault of a variety of factors. That's why I always like to point to this massive societal distrust in institutions, because that's the underlying problem amid all of this. But if you want to know what the streaming platforms can do or what new age media can do, I mean, there are a few things. If you look at what TikTok has said, you know, they ban political ads. I'm not saying that's the right thing or not the right thing, but I think some of these new age platforms, LinkedIn has banned political ads. Twitter has banned political ads. I'm not saying that's the right thing, but I think a lot of platforms are starting to take it more seriously, how their platforms are used for polarization. They're trying to weed out misinformation. On the streamers front, there's been a huge investment in documentaries and some nonfiction programming, in part because it's cheaper. But then it's also because I do think they are responding to a consumer need, which is that consumers are looking for news and information, and they are looking for factual news and information. They're just not going to deliver it to you in the form of a nightly newscast. What my biggest concern is that the echo chambers are not necessarily the programming within each and every little platform. I think what we're ultimately finding is that the echo chambers are happening on different platforms themselves. You know, I look at the success of the Daily Wire, which is a conservative streaming service, subscription streaming service. Their podcasting is some of the top rated podcasting on Apple and Spotify. Like They have created a, its own ecosystem unto itself. And then in the left, you have ecosystems unto themselves as well. Major streamers have maintained, as to Rich's point, the attention of both sides of the aisle. And I don't think they want to mess with that. I don't think that they're going to want to inject any kind of news programming or political programming in there to lose that audience. So what I think is going to happen is your major entertainment platforms become pretty void of politics and news. And then on the fringes, people are going to choose their individual sort of news platforms. And that's what makes me worried. But I think it's less a conversation about who Netflix reaches and more a conversation about, you know, the fact that there's no one big or a few big broadcast networks that have regulated, you know, parameters for how they do news programs that everybody gets access to anymore. It's also hard because I think in many ways, movie and television, but especially television programming culturally sort of tracks pop culture, right? Like throughout our whole lives. I mean, storylines, right? Like the morning show has a COVID storyline, right? Like there's just, you know, it, it is hard, you know, to not see storylines weave them their way into sort of what is happening around us. And so I do think some of this content sort of becomes, I wouldn't say, I, I guess politicized is the best way to say it. It's just because it, it's just hard to avoid what's happening in the, the broader world when creatives are sitting down to create content. And so I think it naturally happens and it's sort of inevitable, but I think it just puts pressure on, look, you've seen all of this pushback on the, you know, I know this is sort of switching gears for a second, but like you've seen all this pressure on the social media companies, you know, the mobile platforms, the Facebooks, the Twitters, et cetera, to be more inclusive and to not just shine a light on one view versus another and to make sure that they're being fair in terms of, you know, how they deal with what they block and don't block and take down. And, you know, I think in some ways that's the same type of discussion that you're sort of asking about, John, which is can these platforms as they're creating content, even if there's a show that skews more in one direction, make sure that they're balancing it out with something that skews in the other direction so that they're sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, I can't think of another word, but like fair and balanced as much as I know, I think that'll make you laugh. But like, I think that's sort of what you're trying to get at. And I, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying. 
I don't think it, I, unfortunately, I don't think it is because at the end, particularly if you're a legacy news organization and you're just trying to keep the lights on and keep your newsroom filled and you know, you break from the narrative that your audience expects from you, you see your audience go somewhere else. I mean, it happened to Fox news with people going to, um, what's the Newsmax, right? I mean, that's like, you can't get your hand too close to the stove, but Sarah, I think what you said was brilliant, right? I don't know if regulation is such a rough word, but like finding some central sort of foundational kind of source of truth that that can that live above that. Now, whether that gets back to, like you said earlier, even with the local, like, are there nonprofit ways to solve that problem? So you're not just like dying for every impression that you get on your site in the hope that you can pay somebody's you know salary the next month. Right? It's a it's such a messy and complicated question. I, I just don't know what the answer is, but well, look, this is like, we're talking about the biggest things that every single person listening to this can relate to because whether they have kids on TikTok or they're watching Netflix or they're trying to get unbiased news or, or biased news, these are things affecting everybody. And so um, you guys are on the front lines of this. You study this stuff more than we do. So really fascinating to hear your perspective on it. So to lighten it up, we like to finish these with some kind of fun poll questions, just a little bit to get to know you and just kind of frivolous as they were. But so I, I picked some that were somewhat apropos of the conversation today. Of these classic cartoons, which is your favorite? Yogi Bear, Tom and Jerry, the Flintstones, Looney Tunes, or the Jetsons, or Scooby-Doo? Big list. Is there Big a right list. answer, I know. by it's the way? Is there list. a right answer in here? Nah, you got to pick. What? Well, yeah, you got to have an all-time, like my mine was the Flintstones. I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I'm going to pick that one. I'm picking yeah. Jetsons because I like the future. I, I would have guessed that. I love cartoons and like none of my favorites are on that list. Like I, I'm such a South Park Simpsons generation, but if I guess if I had a pick from there, it would probably be Flintstones. Yeah. Right so, now it's Bob's Burgers. The big ones. Nice, nice. Yeah. Flintstones and, and Tom and Jerry were tied at number one. So Jetson's all the way down at like 7%. So all I know is Sarah just made me feel old. I, you know, Yes. You're not saying it, John, but that's what she just basically. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what she did. That's it's okay. okay. That's fine. I did also watch South Park. Okay. Um, you like season one, though. All right. How about this one? This one is, this one has to be ageless. Who's your favorite Marvel superhero? Oh. Oh. I, the Marvel thing drives me nuts. You can say, I, you can, there, there is an answer. I don't like any of them. Like, you can I, say, I think the whole Disney, like, I will never watch Marvel anything. Like, I hate superhero stuff. I there's hate, an answer for that. I hate action. I hate explosions. Like, part of the reason I watch cartoons is because I don't want to watch any single thing with violence, guns, anything. And I know that Marvel is superhero, but it blows my mind. I, I, I know why Marvel is popular. I know why people like it, but I have no interest as a consumer whatsoever. All right, Rich, now we're old and Cro-Magnon. So you go. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. When, I, I love it when talent reinvents themselves. And I, I think there's no better story than Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man. So I'm going to pick Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man. That was my pick too. But believe it or not, it's second to Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, no, no, and I get that, which is actually sort of on the side of the MC, right? It's like the Sony side of it, but yes. Yep. yep. All right, great. Oh, Oh, I should, I'm sorry. I should say very clearly that the number one answer by far is none of them. So you're in, you're in the, you're in the distinct majority there, Sarah, getting away from favorite media properties. In your opinion, is it appropriate or inappropriate to leave your cell phone on the table while sharing a meal with someone? Face up or face down? Or it's not, is it just a yes, no? I think it's, well, it's appropriate. Dinner. I, let's just go with face down. Then I'm going to say yes. 
Sarah, is your phone on the table when you're having a meal with someone, either face up or face down? I mean, I guess I guess people will respond no, although I personally think it depends on who you're eating with. Great question. Actually, well, so 56% of people just say abjectly inappropriate. Ages that make you and I feel young, Rich, I think would have a different opinion about that. But yeah, the majority of people say it's inappropriate. How often do you give a donation when prompted to at a self-checkout? Self-checkout? Zero. Yeah, you don't get asked that. Like, do you want to donate a dollar to a food bank? Very large. You don't? Well, it's always like, do you want to round up? Yes. I think the answer is probably no. Yeah, I'm actually in the not at all often category. Rich, do you do it? Sometimes. No. No. Yeah, most people don't. I feel like I do my charitable giving on my own. I don't need to be like coerced into doing it. That's how I sort of feel about it. This is the one I really wanted to ask you both. Does the prospect of living off the grid sound at all appealing to you? Yes. Thousand percent. Yeah. Like a week, I would take a week with no cell phone, no connectivity. I mean, like amazing living off the grid that goes a little bit further, I think, than vacationing off the grid. I mean, but to us, so we're all like in our, in our, in in our fields, we're so glued to it all the time. Like even a few days off the grid is like, dude, I'm staring at you on a computer right now. I would give anything to not like, yeah, I I, I couldn't do it permanently. So if it's living permanently, no, but if it was, you know, a short sort of detox, I think that would be amazing. Yeah. 41% of people say, no, it definitely does not appeal to them. And I think maybe that the operative word there is living. Like, could they actually live forever? I mean, I I definitely couldn't do that. I mean, technology is awesome when it works. And look, you're both awesome. Thank you so much. Really cool to like, we've talked about a lot of things on this, on this podcast over the last year and a half, but we've not really dug into media with, which is both such a force for good. And, and I think there are parts of it that are for, have been forces for evil, whether by design or unintended consequence, but Um, it's become so pervasive and whether we have a metaverse or not, we know new things are coming and it'll expand. Look, Sarah, what I want to say to you is how much we're rooting for you and Axios to succeed at your local crusade, because it needs, we need somebody to figure that model out. So I'm, I'm a huge fan and cheering all big time watching what's happened to local news in Pittsburgh, which was, is such a parochial town that in good ways that it always sort of like hinged on our local news and, and media here, um, watching what's happened to it's been hard. So, so cheering for you all the way. Thank you both. Anything I can ever do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Have a great holiday season. Stay safe. Stay warm. You're both above the Mason-Dixon line, I believe. Oh, no, Sarah, you're in D.C., right? So yeah, won't, get, won't, get, won't get quite as cold, but we're already starting to feel it up here. So thanks again to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you. All right, take Talk care. Soon. Bye. Thank you.